The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is a president of Etherton Associates and Bill Greenwald. Bill is a visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about the Department of Defense, the industrial base, uh, the procurement system, and how the procurement system or the department are responding to, you know, the current uh, environment we are facing. And uh, first of all, guys, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having Thank us. You. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I see Moshe smiling already, um, so um, I appreciate you guys taking the time. And you know. T- Let's this to start the show and this discussion, just focusing on the nature of the threat. What are the national security threats we are facing that and the department is focusing on and responding to? And I'll start with you, Moshe, your, your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, they're, they're very complex and varied compared to history. So obviously the pacing threat in DOD has been very clear about that is China. And China, China poses two threats, right? There's the technological race. And there's also their economic power, which is growing and concerns about them being a peer, both militarily and economically. There's, of course, the Russia threat, which is a very well-known threat and is a much more temporal current threat because of what's going on in Ukraine. In both of those areas, there's a whole new plane of conflict of space. And then there's the cyber threat, which is China and Russia, of course, but it could be anybody. It could be small countries. It can be um, bad actors and criminal organizations. So that's the third threat. It's China, Russia, cyber. And then the fourth one that DOD has to grapple with, I think, is borderless threats. And what I mean by that is threats that are not from one particular location, like uh, pandemics, as an example, like climate change. And what, how does that impact what's going on and aggravate conflict around the world? And those are very different types of th- threats that DOD has to be prepared to respond to. Yeah, and, I, and just to add on to that, I think what, what we're seeing is a historical shift. And, you know, we've always talked about emerging threats and threats that, that uh, are, are on the horizon. And after 30 years of uh, peacetime, the end of the Cold War, these threats have emerged. And, 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 and that's, that's the, I think, the key, the key thing here. China has not only in, in increased its economy, but it's increasing its defense uh, uh, expenditure and capabilities. Obviously, Russia aggression is is something that's that's well documented now in Ukraine, but it's been been occurring over the last uh, ten years. Uh, we have other uh, emerge you know emerge threats: North Korea, uh, Iran, and then and then these new cyber and space threats that that Moshe talks about are, are definitely on the table. The U.S. is now facing this this combined uh, a number of, of of new threats that. Uh, it, it just has to to address them and, and, and get away from its kind of peacetime post Cold War thinking. Yeah, and and on that, that's a great segue, Bill. And can you let's just talk about you know what has how DoD has changed its mindset, how you know where it is, where it's where is it think it's thinking in that process, and what is it looking at in terms of how it operates? What is it 
contemplating changing what has it already changed um whether it's operations contracts procurement logistics that's a big topic and I, and we'll unpack it but I'll start with you bill yeah no i i think it it it, it hasn't quite got its arms around this this new set of threat threats and so therefore the mindset is still a a conflict within the pentagon and the services over what to do and and of course when when you have that there's still the let's keep on doing what we've always done it's got us where we are uh, i'm comfortable with it it's uh uh you know it, it, it essentially let's keep on with going with the status quo and then there's this this uh pressure to essentially address well wait a minute this is an entirely different threat logistics are now in the in the uh in, in the pacific will be contested we're not going to be able just to 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 have uh uh, freedom of the seas, or, or uh, we need to start thinking about time-based innovation. In other words, get capabilities into the into the theater as fast as possible in less than two years or less than five years, not the fifteen to twenty-year process that the current acquisition system uh, is, is 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 geared to do. So, so there's this kind of battle I think going on between those who need know that we need to change and need to to, to be more agile and 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 move at the speed of uh, relevance and those that continuously control the uh, existing uh, framework that says, well, we have to continue to work the way we have always worked. Moshe? And I'm going to actually suggest that we should bring it up a whole different level. It's not just DOD shifting the gears and changing their mindset. And as Bill said, I don't think it's correct to say, how have they changed their mindset? They're trying to change their mindset. They're working it through. It's not so easy. But they have to change their mindset on their mindset. And what I mean by that yeah. is conflict is happening so fast. The threats are happening so fast. It's not changing who's the pacing threat and what you have to adapt to. It's constantly being prepared to always adapt to new things you never thought of. So the threat could be China, but the plane of conflict could be space. The plane of conflict could be cyber. The plane of conflict could be something different. They have to be have a mindset of constantly adapting to new threats and new planes of where you're going to fight those threats. And, and the criteria of how they do that, what does mean success in the old peacetime way, it would have been cost schedule performance. Uh, it would have been, you know, marginal incremental uh, changes to existing capabilities because frankly, the threat wasn't pacing. It was a capabilities based system. Now we're looking at a threat based system and, and time, is the capabilities of your entire force are coming to bear. It's something you can bring bring to bear next week, not necessarily in five years, ten years time frame. And and that does require that 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 mindset change that uh, I think is still a work in progress. Yeah, and you know, just thinking about you, your analysis of mindset on mindsets and you know the you know and time based innovation. Um, is it symbolized by you know this? You you just see and read about whether it's we need to look towards new capabilities, whether it's, you know, the, what you're seeing in Ukraine, how they're using drones and, you know, disposable capabilities versus like big platforms. And that whole discussion, is that a way to frame this and that people aren't thinking outside the box enough? Um, you know, those vested interests in, I guess, my terms, the bureaucracy that are focusing on, hey, we have a, you know, Let's let's maintain the status quo. I don't know if that makes sense or yeah, not. Well, I think I think it's a, uh, what it brings to bear. I think is multiple pathways. 
In other words, if you look at in Ukraine, you know, we, we need to increase the amount of munitions we have and munitions are still important and, and, and platforms are still important and, and, and what the traditional defense industry provides is still important and we need to do that at scale and faster and, and increase production. And then you have this other side where, uh, yeah, there, there, there are new emerging technologies, AI, autonomy, uh, new sensors, and you need to put those packages together in less than 30 days and get them out in, into the field and see if they, you know, if they make a difference or not. And that's kind of what the Ukrainians are doing. And so it, it's kind of a combination of traditional versus non-traditional methods to the, the, trying to address the existing threat. And I think you're seeing that at the leadership level of the Department of Defense, because as I've been seeing this, there seems to be more creativity, openness to new ways, breaking the the tracks of how they've always been doing things across the board. And I'm just going to give some examples, right? You have um, Kathleen Hicks, Deputy Secretary of Defense, talking about the replicator program of ramping up in 18 months thousands of drones or other capabilities. Yeah. They haven't talked about that before. You have Bill LaPlante, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, talking about multi-year procurements for things that they've never used them before and large lot procurements and investing in the defense industrial base in ways they haven't done that before. I know um, Alhima Locke's office, um, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Base um, Resiliency, they did a DPA loan guarantee. They haven't done that in decades. They're using the authorities that exist in new ways. You have Doug Bush at the Army talking about substantial new ways of doing things and other transaction authorities. And the last example I'll give is the Air Force, you have Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force, and then Andrew Hunter, the SAE there, talking about a whole top-to-bottom review of the Air Force that triggers procurement of how they're going to operate. So they are grasping at this opportunity and thinking about new ways, but it will take time to trickle down. And as smart as they're being and really creative in their being, how will they execute? That's the big challenge now. Right, I guess, and we we're up on the break when we come back. I just when you when you talk about the you know the uh, new approaches and versus the status quo and you know platforms versus like drone technology, uh, yeah. One thing I want it's not a zero sum game here. You know, you, you know, taking one to give to the other. I mean, how you know how is the department looking at their resources or fiscal resources? to be able to, to, to do these things. And then, Bill, you mentioned, um, you know, artillery shells. And I think I want to ask you about their approach to that just generally, because that's part of that new thinking. I, I saw an article, I think, today just about, you know, they're going to plan on being able to produce, uh, yeah, artillery shells, 155 millimeter shells, about 100,000 a month by 2025. And they're on path to do that, they claim, I guess. And just how are they going about doing that? It's kind of be interesting to hear. My guests today are Moshe Schwartz. He is the president of Etherton and Associates and Bill Greenwald, who's a visiting fellow at American Enterprise Institute. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guests today are Bill Greenwald. He is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Moshe Schwartz, who is president of Etherton Associates. We're talking about the Department of Defense, how it's uh, framing the threats that it's facing, responding to them, thinking of, thinking about them, and eventually executing on uh, and preparing to respond to those threats. And uh, Bill, the 
for uh, what you mentioned uh, about the um, artillery shells in the last segment, I wanted to follow up on that. And just, you know, I, I mentioned I, I saw an article, you know, that, you know, their goal is to be able to produce 100,000, 155 millimeter shells a month by 2025, you know, and that's a huge, I mean, it's a, I know, 20 fold increase or something from what they're doing prior to the Ukraine war. Um, and I think they're on the trajectory that, you know, they're, they're up in the twenties in a month now already. So how, what's their strategy? How are they, how are they quote thinking outside the box or moving away from the status quo to, to get, get to that point? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say this is what I hope their strategy is. Right. And, okay. uh, and, and, and from what I, you know, what we're hearing, it just seems like where, where they're going. The first thing is, you know, we have a, a peacetime industrial base that has, that has you know, grown around, you know, the, the demand that's out there. And uh, so the first, on the first level, there is an organic industrial base, which a lot of these munitions are dependent upon, which are really old World War II type government-run or contractor-operated facilities. And frankly, you need a lot of investment in those. And I think the, the Department of Army is now starting to, uh, to bring forward some of that investment to, to uh, uh, deal with some of the roadblocks in, in the government side of the house. And then in the private sector, uh, what the, the most important thing there is uh, continuous demand. In other words, predictable demand. So that the private sector can make uh, the investments necessary to increase production. There have been so many times when uh, there have been promises of large contracts, largest of co- large increases that never that ever happened, and the and the industry ends up with uh, uh, financial hits. So what we're seeing is a move towards multi-year procurement because that's that gives you more predict- predictability, and so that's that's a positive side. Then the third side, which I hope they're doing is looking at our allies, because our allies have many of the same issues, but actually some of them have already modernized their munitions plants. And I, I, I visited a, a plant in uh, Norway uh, a few years back, and I, I was amazed by how uh, modernized and uh, the automation that was there. And bringing in some of that technology to our own uh, plants is something that, that, is, that is necessary. But again, with predictable demand and, and investment, we can potentially adopt these uh, the, the, and modernize the industrial base. And I think, if I may, there's a lesson to be learned here with, as the article that you quoted, Roger, of the very quick ramp up of the production of the munitions faster than was anticipated, which is, to paraphrase Mark Twain, the depth of defense industrial base is greatly exaggerated. If And what are the lessons there? It's DOD always had the levers to pull, but they weren't pulling them with defense industrial base. Give them the incentives. Don't view them as the enemy, but as a true partner, and their ability to deliver will be fantastic. And that happened in munitions. Now, that does not mean get rid of all regulation. You need to have appropriate oversight, and you have to have some regulation but let's use the incentives and the levers and the authorities that we have to have a real partnership and let them do their job and they will be able to produce like they did here with the munitions. And another lesson of learned in history is that we tend to right prior to a conflict, have a industrial base that's, that's not geared up. And what happens is the conflict happens and it takes about 18 to 24 months to gear up and get the, uh, capabilities that were needed. 
the Ukraine conflict is actually helped in a, in a number of ways. It's gearing up the U.S. industrial base and giving us that 18 to 24 months potential to be ready for any conflict that could happen in, in the next several years. So, so if we get this right, we're going to be sitting for potentially the first time, and hopefully it just serves as a deterrence and not actual movement into real conflict, but we'll have the capabilities to do exactly what is necessary in, 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 in times of, uh, of conflict. Bill, that's a big if. I mean, I see <laughs> some clouds and challenges for the department to do all these things that we're talking about. Don't no, I agree. I agree. I agree. But we're in the process of that 18 to 24 month buildup. No, and the question is whether exactly like Moshe's saying, is we get it right or, or essentially, uh, oh, well, we don't need that multi-year. Oh, the, the crisis is over. We'll go back to where it is. And then, you know, we, we have a lot of half-finished uh, investment going on. Yeah, and you could say that about COVID too, right? Oh, go, you know, it's over. Are we going to maintain what we did in terms of capabilities for PPE and all the other things that went into the medical logistics uh, framework to respond to it? Or is it, okay, we're past that and we're going to forget about it and they, it's too hard to maintain or invest in? And, and, and Moshe, you were sort of touching on my next question, which was just in terms of all the things the department is facing and what they're thinking about. Um, and Bill ran through all the, you know, and as did you, uh, the, you know, what they're looking at across the different, the air force, the army and Navy, et cetera. Is there enough focus there? Do they have the resources they need? You know, where does Congress come in with regard to this in terms of, you know, sort of providing the tools that they need to be able to, to move forward and, and adapt to the new to new reality. Oh, that's a lot of questions in there uh, wrapped up. Um, wow. So I'll start with the, the Congress one and move from there. I think DOD has the tools they need, you know, statutorily and with the regulations and all that. The two, the three areas I would suggest that Congress plays a significant role is one, get a budget done. Um, and a budget done that's rational based on strategic needs, not political uh, theater that's going on currently. Do we get a shutdown? Do we get CRs with automatic cuts? That's not good for the Department of Defense or for the nation. Um, the second area that they play a big role is adding of regulations that just slow down the acquisition process and make it more challenging. And I'll give you an example of one, IP, right? If DOD or Congress more specifically mandates the authority for DOD to seize IP from contractors, fewer contractors are going to want to work with the Department of Defense. And that is a challenge. And so Congress and DOD, they, we don't want them to overplay their hand and dissuade companies from coming in to the industrial base at a time when companies are actually looking at DOD and going, ah, Maybe we do want to join the Department of Defense. We want to encourage that, not discourage that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Congress is the two minds. And on one hand, they've given the department some tremendous tools, such as mid-tier acquisition, multi-year authority for munitions, other transactions, software color money, all of these, 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 these tools that can make the, let the, allow the department to move fast and be agile. And then on the flip side, it, it, it continuously puts on new rules, new regulations, new ways of, 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 uh, of monitoring a, a, an industrial base. Uh, and, and, and the key thing to learn from here 
is that every single time you do something that's unique to the defense industrial base that you don't do to the rest of the commercial industry, that just creates more overhead, more compliance, and greater inefficiencies. And, you know, but, but policymakers look at this and say, oh, well, I can put all sorts of, you know, rules and regulations on because there's always someone there willing to take the money. But the problem is, are you getting the right people to take the money on the right terms and conditions? And are you incentivizing the right level of productivity? And I'd say on that part scale of Congress, we're not doing it. And I think the other challenge, because you're asking this, Roger, is DOD has some fundamental challenges of their foundation in information technology. And in a world where IT and speed of procurement of IT and artificial intelligence is becoming more and more important, DOD has to start getting this right. So for example, artificial intelligence is only as good as your data is. But DOD's data is not good. They can't implement basic commercial IT platforms, the perfect example is the recent defense travel system uh, challenge where they wanted to replace defense travel system with a system, um, my travel, which is used by tens of millions of people around the world in the commercial markets. It's a commercial market and they just canceled it. If they can't uh, get a commercial travel system right, how are they going to get all of the IT right to run AI in wartime? The department used to lead in information technology back in the 60s and 70s, and it still operates like it does, but it no, it, it, that, that, that time has passed. And, and the department is now, I would say, a decade behind the commercial marketplace in, in, in the vast majority of, of, of information technology. Why? Because of their rules, because of their mindset, because of their, their, their attachment to business processes that are unique. You know what, Bill? Um, we're up on the break and that's a good place to stop. Cause when I come back and say, okay, what are you, what are your thoughts on how you close that time, that decade time gap between the commercial market and the department of defense and get your guys thoughts on that. My guests today are Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton and Associates and Bill Greenwald. He is a visiting fellow at American enterprise Institute. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to off the shelf on federal news network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Bill Greenwald. He's a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Moshe Schwartz is president of Etherton & Associates. We're talking about the Department of Defense, the nature of the threat, how DOD is responding, and what some of the challenges and opportunities for the department and in our nation. And uh, Bill, um, you know, I don't know if I needed to be depressed at the end of the last segment or, uh, but it, but it is, it, it's realistic, right? Um, you mentioned that, you know, your thought is that uh, the department's about a decade behind in terms of technology capabilities and, you know, uh, and what it utilizes versus the private sector. So the logical question coming out of that is like, how, how do, how does the department close that gap? Um, you know, what, what are some of the things you can or can't do across management, procurement operations to, you know, bring them, I guess, into the 2020s? So, so the first thing they have to understand is, you know, the, 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 the market and, and where they, they are in the market, just kind of like when, when Moshe was talking about the defense travel system, the market's been using this for a decade or if not longer. And, and the department is still kind of beyond doing, doing what, it, what it's doing. 
And so it has to understand where is this, is it behind? Where does where is the has the market created new products and new services that uh, that the department doesn't need to replicate uh, in, in in a unique unique fashion? And then it needs to put its resources over there and and, and take the savings that are available from from adopting those commercial uh, practices and, and and so on using frankly the tools that Congress has given them. They've given them. Like say other transactions, the contracting authority, commercial item preferences, which are tr- designed to drive that type of behavior, but have have essentially been ignored. Uh, commercial item item contracting to to provide the incentives to to the commercial sector to, to to work through there. So you start with that, and then when you take advantage of what's out there in the market, then you determine, oh, here are the unique, the truly unique defense military unique things that we need to invest in with the truly uh, uh, cutting edge companies that can address that. And so you just basically need to look, bifurcate this. What's out there in the market, adopt that, use the tools you have, and then shift resources and shift focus on the, and to develop those military unique things that could actually take you ahead of the um, uh, commercial marketplace. Because there are some things that the commercial marketplace is not going to invest in. And in that case, that's where you need to put your money. Moshe? Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. One is we talked at the top of the hour on the threats, right? China, Russia, cyber, the plane of space. There is so much that DOD can't afford to be spending money in places that isn't providing a significant enough rate of return. Not financial internal rate of return, but a capability and operational rate of return. And this is a budget prioritization, and they need to prioritize. And this goes back to Congress. Congress needs to be clear in prioritizing where they're going to put the money and what are we going to focus on and get rid of the other stuff, right? So that's number one that I wanted, I wanted to mention. So IT modernization, we've got to do that because that will enable all these other things that we're talking about. The second thing, which I think is important, is getting a mission focus. And what I mean by that is very frequently you'll hear terms like we need to go to non-traditional and small businesses. Yes, obviously. We need that as a country in our defense industrial base. But we also need the traditional defense contractors to play a role. We need innovation wherever it comes from. And that should be the priority innovation wherever it is and everybody should want to give it to us because we work with them as good business partners right and not focus on it has to be small business or it has to be non-traditional or it has to be commercial or it has to be traditional contractors it's wherever it is coming from and that message gets all lost in all these other things that we're trying to value right so i'll give you i'll give you one and then the third thing is there are levers that the department of defense has that they should use to really help get industry to deliver. And I'll give one example, um, cash flow, right? Cash flow is a very powerful tool. And so progress payments is something that doesn't cost DOD money, but is very valuable to, to contractors. So use that tool and sometimes say, look, we will give you the higher cash flow, right? to help with something else like inflation. If, if we're not gonna give you more money to deal with inflation because we're having the budget, we'll give you the cash flow for a little bit longer through elevated progress payments. You know, they have levers that they're not necessarily using as efficiently as I think they could. 
and, and I, I have to agree with you, Moshe, in the sense that, you know, the United States only has so many scientists and engineers to, to attack, attack on problems. The, but the problem we have is we have rule sets that are different for traditionals and non-traditionals and small businesses that create different levels of productivity depending and, 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 and different outcomes depending upon how the, how the uh, you know, rule sets are applied. And, and so I, I think the issue we have right now is that the traditional defense contractors are operating under just a mire of, of, of regulation and, and disincentives to do the most innovative thing because uh, we go back to the mindset of the Department of Defense is that they're comfortable with, with applying criteria and, and implementing criteria for something that's different than actually meeting the threat in, as quickly as possible and, and shifting, you know, to the, to the, um, and, and waiving those rules. Imagine trying to waive the rules for the F-35. It's never going to happen. Okay. So the F-35 is no. going to be, you know, the way, the way it is. But that's the F-35. So take something like the, uh, the, the um, reimbursable salary caps on cost contracts, right? What we're basically saying to defense, traditional defense contractors, if you're on a cost contract, we're only going to allow you to pay that we'll reimburse it for salary caps that we know don't compete with the uh, top IT companies in, in the uh, private sector. So we're not giving, we're not allowing them to have the tools to come up with that innovation. That makes no sense. No, I agree. We've, we've handcuffed the, the traditional contractors. So is no, this, you're supposed is, to disagree. We're mixing it up. No, 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 no. But I, but I, but I agree in that regard. But I also look at the the way the Congress is 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 addressing this is that they they don't want to do that. They've got themselves again of this two minds. We want to be innovative. We want to go fast. We want to be agile. And but oh, we got to we got to keep our thumb on the defense contractors. And oh, they shouldn't make a profit uh, because you know that's just just not not the American way. At the end of the day, is it really about the you know, a cultural approach that is willing to accept the risk. I mean, you talk about like, you know, it's almost like, you know, on the traditional defense contractor side, you you know, Congress and whoever from a rules-based perspective is trying to, you know, engineer risk out of the process in a certain sense of risk on cost, time, whatever. And it just ends up, you know, being counterproductive and will you know, but when you're talking about new emerging technologies, AI, drone, whatever, unless they change that mindset and willing to accept risk, you know, we're never going to get there. Is that fair? I, I think it is fair. We have to accept risk. We have to accept failure. We have to accept, uh, 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 you know, the, the fact that uh, the traditional defense contractors uh, should be competitive if we want them to have the incentive to, uh, to be more innovative or innovative in like other sectors. And what's actually surprising, if you look at what's very interesting, I was just looking at the profit margins of, of various sectors of the economy. You know, the defense and aerospace uh, uh, profit margins are, are, are you know, relatively low compared to, you know, the IT world. And what's actually very interesting is that they're like about a fourth of what the new green energy and renewable uh, world is getting, which is, is an interesting signal that's going on, on here that the government is saying, if you're in green energy or if you're in uh, this, you can make four times the profit margins that the defense industry in makes. And, you know, why? Well, they want them to be in innovative. Well, why shouldn't the defense industry get the same margins uh, that, that we're encouraging here? 
and so that they can be innovative because the threat is actually equally, if not greater, on the, the hardware military side as it is on the climate change side. Right. Do, do you think, you know, when you, you know, Bill, you talked um, about something near and dear in my heart, commercial item acquisition. And because the fact that what we're talking, you know, when you're talking about AI, for example, that's technology change, advancement, innovation in AI is coming from the private sector. And, you know, and you combine that with cloud capability and that data management, does that just like demand that the, the department focus on commercial item contracting for that, those type of capabilities? No, absolutely. You, you sh- again, you, you, you look at what DOD has at, on the demand side and the defense budget, you know, we think it's so massive, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's 11% of, of what the government spends, the federal government spends on, on everything, and that includes mandatory spending and so on. And then, that, that's, 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 and then half of that is probably contracting. Um, and then, you know, a, a lot of that's on supplies and, and, and things like that. And, 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 and so when you really get down to it, what the department spends on IT and that, that could drive cloud or drive this is, is, is minuscule to, depending on what's driving the, the money coming from the commercial side. And the DOD should learn to leverage that. And that's what the whole idea behind commercial item preferences, be trying, trying to force the department, incentivize them to use these, these various tools to buy commercial. And for whatever reason, uh, security is one of them, or just the traditional way we do business and, and, and so on. There's that, you know, everything is unique in DOD. We can't, we can't risk it because we, we want to be, we're too risk averse. Um, you know, we, we, we don't adopt this, but think about it. The banking industry is concerned about security. Uh, the rest of, you know, every commercial company wants to protect its IP uh, from, from hackers. And so, I mean, you know, there are lots and lots of solutions out there that the department can use. And then if there's something unique, they can, they can work, work, you know, to, to add that on. Right. You know, Bill we're, and Moshe, we're up on the break. When we come back, we'll finish up our discussion, talk a little bit more about the defense industrial base. So I know we've touched on it a fair amount in this segment, maybe budget flexibility. And, and if time, and we have time, a little bit about allies again. I mean, I, you know, made a great point about your, your trip to the, you know, to the manufacturing plant in Norway and just how, you know, that's one of our, you know, I guess, strategic advantages at the end of the day. My guests today are Bill Greenwald. He's visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guests today are Moshe Schwartz. He is president of Etherton Associates and Bill Greenwald, who is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We've been talking about the Department of Defense, the nature of the threat, how it's responding, some of its challenges and um, and opportunities. And uh, this segment, well, you know, the department needs the defense industrial base, right, guys? So uh, we'll yeah. focus a fair amount of our discussion on the health uh, of the defense industrial base and, you know, and, and, how the department can make sure it maintains the health of that. I mean, we touched on that in some in the last segment. I think Bill talked a lot about that. But Moshe, let's start with you first. Sure. So Winston Churchill had a quote, which I think really puts into context how we should think about the defense industrial base. He said, some see private enterprise as a predatory target to be shot, others as a cow to be milked, but few are those who see it as a sturdy horse pulling the wagon. 
and that is a great metaphor. On one level, DOD needs to look at industry as the horse pulling the wagon that they need to hitch themselves to. But there's another level that makes this quote even smarter, which is you hitch your wagon to a horse, but you don't just have that horse free. You guide it, right? It has a bridle, right? It is hitched to the horse. No one here is talking about let industry do what they want. What they're saying is let industry do the heavy lifting and guide them and control them. Do what you do with the horse. It's a great quote because that's how we will succeed. It's a partnership and, and letting industry be industry and getting the benefits of that. Bill, I don't know. I mean, can you top Winston Churchill, that quote from Winston Churchill? I don't know. I can't. I've, I've got a lot of Churchill quotes, but I can't top that one. So, uh, but but I, 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 I do think that, uh, you know, the, the defense industrial base and, and the U.S., total U.S. industrial base, and frankly, the allied industrial base is our, really our, our major tool that, that we, we have. It's our major advantage dealing with, with, with uh, China and the, the other threats. And we just need to understand how to incentivize it and how to use it. And, and the department can be innovative. It was innovative. It drove innovation in the 50s and 60s. It had a different way of, of doing that, a different way of incentivizing. And this was done before we bureaucratized uh, many of our processes, our requirements processes, our, our acquisition process, our budget process. And we became linear focused and step-by-step pro focused and really didn't take advantage of the, the industry and lead the industry the way uh, we did in that time frame. And frankly, innovation has suffered uh, ever since then. So how, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Bill, at the beginning in the first segment used the term time-based innovation. You know, is it acquisition streamlining in terms of time, the identification and need to time to contract for it? Um, is it communication with industry in a more direct collaboration, you know, a, just ongoing collaboration, focusing on technology? W- what kind of things would you recommend Sure. Um, in that, from that, from, to ensure we get time-based innovation to respond to the threats. And, and so, what I mean by time-based innovation is the way the Department of Defense and the U.S. government as a whole innovated in the '50s and '60s. And essentially, the key starting point was decision time. It was able to bring budgetary resources and make a decision to pursue what essentially were operational prototypes. In other words, to pursue new ways of, of attacking a problem and focus all of that time, effort, and money into something that would deliver capability in less than five years. And our first satellites, our first uh, ICBM launchers, our first jet, everything that was done in that particular time had a, a five-year period. And then we would continuously spiral uh, in, 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 uh, in new developments in, in, in that time frame. So yeah, it's, it's flexible budgeting. It's essentially a, a requirement system that can move fast and make a decision. It's an acquisition system that essentially is comfortable with putting something out there in the operational field and testing it. It's an entirely different way of, of thinking the way we do now, which is a very linear step-by-step process. I don't think I'm disagreeing with you, although I'm trying. But you said a few decades ago, this is where they would focus. In some ways, there's a much lighter touch that is required from DOD because industry is going to do a lot of this stuff on their own. So you don't necessarily in all cases need that focus and direction. Sometimes it's a lighter touch and not getting in the way of, of industry and some subtle signals and subtle investments and subtle shifts for it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's essentially, you know, industry has to be go out there and, and have the flexibility to uh, try things and fail and move on and so on. But the department has to have the ability to, when it's necessary, to fund those things that the private sector will not fund on its own and do that quickly and, and do that uh, in, in, in year of budget execution. Right now, we have a system where we sit around and, and we might see a technology, but we say, well, does that, does that work in the requirements in the JSONs process? Well, that's a three-year process that, that goes down there. That gets us to the point where we can actually enter the PPBE process to get it funded. And that's another three-year process before you finally maybe get congressional uh, authorization to, to fund that thing. And then we enter the, the acquisition process, and we got to think through that. And contracting could take, as, as we all know, up to two years on something big like this. That's eight years before we actually see something technologically and want to actually do something on a traditional system. Obviously, technology has now spiraled, uh, you know, four or five times, and this is how the department gets behind the technological curve. It has to go faster and basically move that decision time from from requirements to contracting in less than a year. We used to do that. We can't do that anymore. Or, well, we could, but it, it would take, you know, major hurdles to get over to do that. That's a great place to end the show. And maybe I'll have you guys come back and we can address, you know, how exactly to do that, compress that time at the end of the day. That it, it is fundamentally, you know, identifying that need, you know, being able to fund it and then execute on it. You know, what you just described is a decades long process, you know, Bill, and, you know, we can't afford that anymore. So um, as a great discussion, uh, Moshe uh, and Bill, I'm sorry you guys didn't disagree more. Uh, I'm not disappointed, but you get you guys maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, I want to thank you so much for for joining me today. My guests have been Moshe Schwartz, the president of Etherton Associates and Bill Greenwald, who's a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Roger Waldron. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.